Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And we have some very exciting topical, I think, authors and postcards and things to bring all of you this week. So I'm really excited because I am currently in northern Michigan um, on a first family vacation since COVID. And it's been really wonderful to be up here. And this week we have picked, I think, a very appropriate author, but also have some very important topical updates for all of you, which will be very exciting. So um, I'm excited to explain why I chose the author I did this week. But John, do you mind if I take over your position slightly this week and present some in the field work? Not even a little bit, Stephanie. Go ahead. I think it makes a lot of sense because you're there in the field today. Exactly right. And yes, I am currently in northern Michigan. And um, it's the first trip that I've been able to take since COVID started, which has been really exciting. But um, there are quite a few ties to various authors. So obviously, I have to go find them. I realize if I travel anywhere, some kind of author has probably been here. And so um, there's a very famous author that we are going to be uh, presenting on, um, Jim Harrison, this week, who's a poet and essayist and novelist, um, an all-around kind of American writer. Um, But there's also someone who predates him a little bit. Um, His name rhymes with Mernest Lemingway. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Hemingway. It rhymes. Oh. Ernest Hemingway. Yes, very good, John. Oh, um, <laughs> so Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> whose birthday is actually going to be um, the very same day that we put this podcast out. Happy birthday, Ernie. Yes, Ernest Hemingway's birthday is July 21st, and um, so John and I are obviously recording this a few days in advance, but he has a lot of ties to northern Michigan where he spent a lot of his childhood. And so I have taken the liberty of dragging my family to all different kinds of locations where Ernest Hemingway has had ties. And so we'll be including some of the little audio postcards that I took at these actual locations. So I hope you enjoy uh, learning a little bit more right now about Ernest Hemingway ways ties to northern Michigan. Get lit listeners, this is a postcard from Petoskey, Michigan, and I am standing in the Historical Society, specifically the Little Traverse Bay um, Historical Society right on the marina. And Ernest Hemingway spent a lot of time up here growing up, and there's a really fabulous permanent exhibit in this area that focuses a lot on his family. There's a lot of really charming childhood pictures. There's some artifacts, some chairs, things like that from his house up here. Um, But I think one of the most interesting things that I'm seeing is all of the outdoors pictures from the activities. It really seems like it set a lot of the tone um, for his later writing. He was really passionate, of course, about the outdoors, and a lot of that is things that we see. And so if you're up here, they have a lot of really fantastic blown-up pictures of him um, checking out the outdoors with his family, a really charming one of he and his sisters roasting some marshmallows, um, and that sort of thing. So if you're curious and interested, would definitely recommend stopping by here if you're ever in northern Michigan um, as they have all these fantastic things. There's also a really nice set of articles and some things about the way that this place had an influence on his work, some excerpts and things like that from his actual books, which they have copies of. So would definitely recommend checking that out, but we'll be back with another postcard on our Ernest Hemingway tour stop.
All right, Get Lit listeners, I'm recording here from the City Park Grill, which is in Petoskey, Michigan. And this, when it was called the Annex, was one of Hemingway's go-to spots. Um, He would sit at the second seat from the left at the end of the bar um, and have his drink while he was here. So having experienced this myself, can highly recommend the biscuits in the area. They are very good. Um, And it was fun to sort of sit and grab a beer. There is the original bar um, from the 18th hundreds along with a picture of Ernest so you can stop by for beer biscuits and a moment to remember Ernest Hemingway. Stephanie thank you for sharing it sounds like you had an absolutely fantastic time being in the footsteps of the Ernest Hemingway. Yes, it was very fun. We've had a very good time so far, and I'm looking forward um, to tracking more sites. If anything, this has gotten me more excited for our upcoming trip. So I'm very much looking forward to checking out Minnesota and all of the author connections that we know exist there already. As am I, and I don't think I could have picked a better couple vacations for you out of COVID than just traveling to literary sites. So this is exactly what you needed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm really glad that everything that I do now is just chasing authors around the world, which honestly, is is that a discovery show yet? I feel like we have a deal coming up. Like, get us on literary travels and and make a show about it. I'd watch it. Right now, only Discovery has been talking to us. So we're waiting for things from (laughs) History and a couple of other channels and National Geographic. So we'll see. Right. (laughs) Right. The offers are are going to be coming very soon. Right. So, and listeners, if any of you have connections, you know, feel free to put this out there as well. All right. Well, without any more um, ado, we're going to go ahead and turn it over um, to our other Northern Michigan author, Jim Harrison. James Thomas Harrison was born on December 11th, 1937 in Grayling, Michigan. This makes him a Sagittarius. Super fun. I feel like that's also a high author category for us. Maybe, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And according to FamousBirthdays.com, he is the 34th most popular author born in Michigan. So apparently we have a very large deficit um, of authors from Michigan. Fortunately for us, most of them are still alive. So that's why we can't quite feature them on the podcast yet. (laughs) But it looks like we'll be able to come back here quite a few times. Nice. So some of these authors include Christopher Paul Curtis, who wrote Bud, Not Buddy, and The Watsons Go to Birmingham, children's book author and illustrator. I definitely read that second one in school. Yes. Um, Michael Shore, who's the writer of Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the TV shows. I thought that and was cool. And The Good Place, which is the best. Oh, one. really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, Patricia Polacco, who wrote Chicken Sundays and The Keeping Quilt. Um, she has these really fabulous folk art kind of children's books that I would highly recommend. They're very wonderful and warm. Nice. And then Chris Van Alsberg, who wrote The Polar Express and Jumanji. I did not know that that author wrote both of those works. Neither did I, but apparently he did. So <laughs> Good for him. I know. Um, he's also the number 11th most popular Sagittarius named Jim. So going along with our uh, star sign named blank, as we did last week, this apparently was also a category that we got this week because we also have Jim Morrison, the musician. Um, and there were actually like a lot of football guys and guitar guys. Like various coaches and football and baseball players and guitar people and that sort of thing. 
James is a masculine sports name, I think. Apparently. <laughs> so, um, he was the son of Winfield Harrison, and uh, his mother's name was Norma, and he was raised primarily in Reed City. Um, which, again, this is sort of northern Michigan, think Traverse City area-esque. And Winfield, his father, was a country agriculture agent. And I'm not quite sure what that is, but he is, maybe he works for the CIA, but for farms. That's what it sounds like to me. (laughs) I think whatever it is, it makes sense that it's in upper Michigan. Yes. So Winfield Harrison was... Um, also a lover of books. And he passed this on, of course, to his son. And he also had a lot of very helpful little sayings and things like that, um, that he would pants down as well. I'm sure today they would become posters, perhaps. Um, But one of the more memorable ones that I was able to find was, quote, when you sit in a bar, never curl your feet under the rungs of a bar stool in case you're sucker punched, end quote. What an aphorism. Yes, I thought so. So maybe that'll be another merch item that we sell. <laughs> it's just something, something, something in case you're sucker punched. I think that's going to be a trope. <laughs> yes, we can make that a, a new thing. That'll be author wisdom that we can put out. Um, so when Jim was seven, he wrote a memoir called Off to the Side in 2002. But a lot of um, kind of the information that I've gotten, this came from him because he died only in 2016. So pretty recently. Um, but he lost his eye um, in a neighborhood accident when a girl thrust a broken bottle into his face. Yikes. That's really aggressive. Yes. So from a, I can't I don't know if it was really like on purpose or he got in the middle of the fray or what happened, but he got a broken bottle thrust in his face and lost his left eye. So while kind of recovering from this, he no longer had as much of an interest in playing with the other children. So he sought a lot of solace in the woods and spent a lot of time out there. He also then spent a lot of time reading, including his favorite or one of his favorite authors, William Faulkner. Sorry, John. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> By um, when he was a teenager, he decided he was going to be a writer. So early on, this reading and spending a lot of time kind of with these author voices encouraged him to be a writer. And his father also was really excited for him and encouraged him and actually bought him a $15 typewriter to get him started, which I thought was really nice. Yeah, it's nice that his dad's supporting him. Right? I don't, I don't, that doesn't often happen with a lot of our authors, I feel. I agree. Like they, they, they want to do something creative and their parents are like, no, you have to take over the shoe shine business or whatever they're doing. <laughs> right. Or you have to get married or something like that. <laughs> right. Writing isn't for women. <laughs> women can't, right? Um, so in high school and college, he was actually also a gymnast, which I thought was pretty interesting. There wasn't a ton of information available about his high school years, but I did find out that he was a gymnast. I do think like... I would think that two eyes would help with depth perception and balance, but it sounds like he was able to overcome that, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Or maybe because he only had one eye, the other one didn't trick him. You know how like sometimes your eyes readjust quickly to something. So maybe he only had one eye. So he only had one kind of shot and he got, he was able to get it. However it worked. He was a gymnast. 
It did. And apparently good if he was able to go on and do it in college as well. Yeah. So before he got to college, but after he finished high school, um, he decided that he was going to go to New York to become a bohemian. As one does. As one does. Um, So he packs up his typewriter and a set of books and then takes some money and hitched over to Boston and then eventually New York, where he drank with Jack Kerouac at a bar. So that was pretty cool. I mean, once you do that, do you even need to do anything else in New York City or can you just go home and go to college? Yeah, honestly, that sounds better. (laughs) Um, But I do, he wrote um, in an interview that I read a pretty interesting story about kind of how things came about. It just paints a really beautifully vivid picture. So I thought I would read it to you. And his story is, quote, I accumulated $90 and my dad gave me a ride out to the highway. So dad was in on this. Dad was like, here, go. Be a bohemian. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, And back to the quote. I had my favorite books and the typewriter he'd given me for my 17th birthday. One of those 20 buck used typewriters and all my clothes in a cardboard box tied with a rope. And I was going off to live in Green Witch Village. I was going to be a bohemian. I think I'd seen pictures of Bohemians in Life magazine, and that's what I wanted to be. Also, the girls looked really pretty. They had straight black hair and wore turtlenecks. And my dad thought it was all fine. He wasn't insistent about me finishing college at the time. He knew that Hemingway and Faulkner didn't go to college. End quote. There's so much to unpack there. (laughs) Right? So like I said, I I think it paints a very vivid picture. I mostly like the idea that like the, you know, high style of the bohemian woman, right? This is the beatnik era, um, was dark black hair and turtlenecks. That's awesome to me. (laughs) Right. And not only that, but that that is what for Jim was the the pretty girls he needed to go for. Because I mean, at 18, 17, like, I'm sure he's going just as much for that as the writing. Yeah. Or just, you know, I think kind of caught up in the the cultural icon sense that I think Bohemian America was at this time. Yeah, the aesthetic Um, is worth chasing. Definitely. Or at least hitchhiking a ride (laughs) to New York after your dad drops you off with your box of clothes. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Um, All right. And so there was a question asked, of course, by the interviewer, a follow-up question, what books did he bring, right? If he only has clothes, a typewriter, and books, there have to be significant reasons. So he brought Rimbaud's Illuminations, which I don't know, and specifically the Louise Varese mm-hmm. translation, again, wonderful. Um, he brought Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, the King James Bible, Dostoyevsky's Notes from Underground, and Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Well, at least he's bringing very light books that aren't too heavy with right. him so that he can travel light. Easy things to not only get through, but also carry. I mean, that must have weighed a ton. And the typewriter and his clothes. I mean, that's it, though. Okay. Like, you know, that's all he's got. What else do you need to be a... Uh, Bohemian in New York uh, City. Bohemian. $90 yeah. apparently will do it for you. Um, So after he has a delightful time running around New York City as a bohemian, he comes back and does attend Michigan State University, where he gets his bachelor's in comparative literature. And shortly after this, in 1959, he marries um, a sweetheart of his, Linda King. um, And then they start their family actually right away. 
So this was a pretty, I think, kind of aggressive start. Again, this is like in the early 60s, but he's a very young man at this point in time. Um, And he then goes back to get his master's degree in 1964. While having kids. Good for him. So, yes, trying to support a family um, and his wife and his career in literature, uh, he really struggled. So he said around this time he was only making about $10,000 a year, which again, when you have, I think he had three daughters um, total, but, you know, obviously when they're young. So throughout the course of that time, $10,000 really does not a sustainable living make, I think. This reminds me so much of Vonnegut. Oh, like having a bunch of kids, like yeah. master's degree in Chicago. Like that's true. Very similar. So unfortunately, um, in 1962, so just after he gets married and starts his family, but before he goes back for his master's degree, um, his father and his sister, uh, who was 19 at the time, were killed on a hunting trip when their car was struck by a drunk driver. And oh, that's terrible. right. Jim had a really difficult time with this because he had been invited and had kind of flipped back and forth about going versus not going. Obviously, he ultimately decided not to go, but he felt an immense sense of guilt about delaying the start of their trip, which could have put them on the road at the wrong moment, resulting in their deaths. I, it's not his fault. I know. Um, so I thought that was a a really kind of poignant and and honest way of reflecting and and a really vulnerable thing to share because of course, you know, he wasn't, I guess he is a survivor, but not even a survivor of the incident, but sort of survivor's guilt kind of going on. So this obviously has a profound impact on the rest of his life. And unfortunately, he starts to battle with depression around this time. And again, something that'll come up sort of throughout the course of his life that he really struggles with. So after this, his brother, who was a librarian at Harvard, which I also thought was kind of interesting, his older brother, John, incidentally. I mean, literature runs in this family's veins. Yeah. Um, But John was able to get um, some connections working so that his poetry might go to a publisher. And so his first collection called Plain Song was published in 1965. And this actually also helps land him a professor's job at Stony Brook University in New York. Nice. Yes. That's two really great things. Fantastic. Yes. However, um, <laughs> he did not like teaching very much. The institution of academia was not really his cup of tea. And he thought mm. that everybody should do work like manual labor, um, kind of as he did and was doing. So after just a year of being a professor, he moves back to Michigan and lives on a farmhouse in Leelanau County in Michigan. And it's here where he freelances as a journalist, um, but also works as a laborer, which he spent a lot of his time laying bricks, but also did some carpentry. And he thought that this experience and these, you know, this kind of manual labor and work made him a better writer. I like to hear him expound more upon that. I mean, right. I I guess I've heard people say, if you want to be an actor, study anything but acting. I wonder if it's just a similar kind of uh, mm-hmm. mantra. I think so. I, I, I like that piece of advice because I really do think 
kind of the well-rounded person becomes very interesting, not only, you know, to sort of speak to or talk to, um, but also would probably have some pretty unique perspectives whose writing might be richer, right? So to have these experiences, or I guess to have this variety of experiences, like what a wonderful gift to kind of give yourself, but also give your readers. And I also acknowledge and appreciate that this description is much more poetic. He literally just needed to earn a living. Right. But I mean, he left a lucrative professorship to specifically work in uh, like manual labor, which he must have really felt strongly about it. Mm, Fair point. So also during this time to kind of make ends meet, he starts co-editing the literary magazine Sumac, like the tree. And he also, because of the success of his first book of poetry, uh, starts to live off of a series of awards from both the National Endowment for the Arts and a Guggenheim Fellowship. So right off the bat, his writing is incredibly successful, which I think, again, very remarkable. Um, Yeah, he got recognized just by that first book of poems. Right. And so throughout this, uh, the 60s, he starts and works through quite a few uh, poetry collections. Locations in 1968, Walking in 1967, and The Outlier and Ghazals in 1969. And so this blends and kind of becomes his signature style of combining philosophical inquiry with the earth. So I've read um, quite a few of his poems at this point, and a lot of people kind of compare him to Ernest Hemingway, which he rejected, but a lot of scholars also reject because his writing is really not Hemingway-like at all, right? Hemingway kind of has these really sparse, blank, intense works, I think. And his writing actually kind of reads to me much more like Mary Oliver um, in its kind of ponderance of the universe, but descriptions, very visual descriptions of the world and that kind of paint a picture for you. So I think if Mary Oliver and like he's very much like Ernest Hemingway in that he's sort of this hyper masculine, very strong, very visceral figure, but his writing is not like Hemingway is at all, in my opinion. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if just the proximity of where they lived and their birthplace might have contributed to that comparison. Uh, yeah, I think definitely. That's a great point. Um, and they also, you know, I'll post pictures, of course, online. Um, but they also kind of look so, like rugged, beard, white-haired kind of men. <laughs> that's that's not... just all authors as they age, right? <laughs> that's Stephanie. true. But he looks particularly <laughs> gnarled. Like he okay. looks, and, and Ernest Hemingway definitely much more elegant looking, in my opinion. Um, but like if I were to go, you know, sit down at a at a restaurant or something and look over and see him, like it, that man has stories. You know, he just looks mm. like he has been places, he has seen things, and he has stories to tell. Maybe that's why they, they compared the two. Because mm-hmm. they both have that sort of like masculine... Um, like earthbound, like manual labor mystique. Yeah. So, you know, let us know if you have read Harrison's work in the past or you're familiar, uh, feel free to chime in and give us your two cents, listeners. Um, so his first novel was published in 1971. It's called Wolf. 
and um, <laughs> takes the takes a look at a disaffected man viewing a wolf in the wilderness. And this experience causes his luck in the book, apparently, to change. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And so the reason that he switched to writing a novel, as opposed to poetry, which he had been very successful for in the past, um, this was his recount of his experience. Quote, I fell off a cliff while bird hunting and hurt myself. And I had to be in traction for a month. I had a long convalescence. Fortunately, I had the Guggenheim, that's the award, that year, or we would have been bankrupt. So Tom McGain, who's his friend and also a writer, suggested I write a novel while I was convalescing, and that's how I wrote Wolf, end quote. <laughs> that's it. Yep. He, he fell off a cliff yeah. while bird hunting. I was in bed. I decided to write a book. Yep, that was that. Um, and the publication story around this was also very interesting because he only wrote one copy of the manuscript and it got lost in the mail due to a postal strike for months before it eventually reached the publisher and was accepted. So I thought that was pretty interesting. No. Yes. My heart would just drop. Right? How would you even know? You know, what would you even do? I cry. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's literally I just sit down and cry a little bit. I got yeah. What an unfortunate time for a postal strike. I have only had one instance of this in college. I had a final term paper for my strange Victorian love poetry class. Yes, this is a valid <laughs> degree. <laughs> and it was we had to get it in right before spring break or something like that. But our teacher allowed us to mail it. And as long as it got mailed to her by a certain time, it was accepted. And I drove to Georgia, finished my paper and put it in the mail in time for it to get back. And I guess if it had not been accepted, I don't know if I would have passed. <laughs> well, thank goodness you didn't have the Harrison postal strike, you know? Right. I, yeah, I guess I got very lucky. <laughs> Very lucky. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe then she would have received it months later and it would have been brilliant and published. Okay, you're right. That's the only possible outcome. <laughs> that was the only other option. Okay. <laughs> so in 1973, he publishes another novel, A Good Day to Die. And then um, later that year, he publishes Letters to Yasmin. And this is poetry based on a series of Persian forms. So he's experimenting a lot with uh, poetic form. A lot of his stuff is free verse, but he definitely dabbles with highly structured poetic form work. And this collection of poetry deals with suicide, which again, as I mentioned before, was something that he really struggled with depression um, throughout the early start of his, his life with his wife and starting writing and things like that. And this is kind of the product of that work. So he then publishes uh, Farmer in 1976, which also is made into a film. Wolf gets made into a film in 1994. It's called Carried Away, and that comes out in 96. So you can see that, you know, we get these early 90s films made out of his books and work from the 60s and 70s, which, again, I also think is kind of interesting. That is really cool. Uh, I like when we have bleed over from the literary world into the pop culture. Uh, so that's very that's very interesting. Yes, yeah, and it's I not think so. it's not the one with the Liam Neeson and the wolves, is it? <laughs> no. So 
we now switch gears. And funnily enough that you say cultural overlap, because this is a huge one. Um, In 1979, he publishes Legends of the Fall. And this is like his big work that I think if people know uh, Jim Harrison, they probably know Legends of the Fall, the movie, if not the book. So let's talk a little bit about the novel first. Um, I think this is really interesting, the origins of this. It's based actually off of the journals of his wife's great-grandfather. who That's was so a, cool. Right? He was a mining engineer, just like you, except minus the mines. <laughs> and um, it... It's, it was planned originally as a three-novella format. So Legends of the Fall is one of three. And it actually originally ran in Esquire, the magazine, the publication, um, at <laughs> 23,000 words. And then the Holy second cow. one, I know, the second one called Revenge was 30,000, which I think is insane. I mean, to be published in a magazine, yes. Right. I think the typical, just to give listeners some perspective, I think the typical length of a a story, a short story run in a magazine is somewhere like 8,000, four to 8,000. So you're getting something three. Yeah. yeah. Four four stories back to back. (laughs) Right. Um, So the first was called Revenge. And this actually gets made into a film first, but it's not as popular as Legends of the Fall. So Legends of the Fall, the film that I think people are familiar with, actually launches Brad Pitt's career, or is one of the launching points, yeah, of him as kind of the sort of masculine hunk of the film world. So he turns out it's it's kind of a love triangle story. This woman who falls in love with three different brothers <laughs> at various times and in various capacities. And Brad Pitt is so one it's Mamma Mia, right? But not as fun. <laughs> like it's not happy, <laughs> to gotcha. my knowledge. <laughs> There's also no singing. Okay, so okay. I don't have so as much interest. Right. Right. It is not the prequel to Mamma Mia. Let's clarify that right now. Legends of the Fall is not Mamma Mia's prequel. So um, he continues writing, but he also has written some screenplays at this point and kind of plays around with them throughout his career. But it's through working in film, uh, again, more so for the money than I think the actual joy of writing for film, that he runs into and meets Jack Nicholson and actually becomes a good friend of his. Um, So much so that when he first gets started, again, is kind of struggling financially, Jack Nicholson loans him $30,000 to live and to kind of get the, the work published that he believed in. He gave one of his novels to Jack Nicholson, who loved it, and was like, great, we need to get this guy uh, writing more. So he gave him $30,000. From Jack Nicholson. Right? What a nice gift. Yeah, right? My birthday is in September. Not that either of those things are related, but I'll just posit that right now. I look forward to the manuscript you send me before I uh, support you as a patron. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so he then continues to write um, a series of, of novels and, and poem collections, Returning to the Earth in 1977, Selected and New Poems from 1961 to 1981, which was published in 1982, and The Theory and Practice of Rivers, 
which was published in 1985. So you can kind of see, again, you're really getting these connections to Earth. You're getting these connections to philosophical questions. Um, the idea of the practice of rivers, I think, is really compelling. So really, I think, kind of showing off the, the place where he feels home in his work. He then wrote um, Warlock and Sundog in the early 80s, but it was his novel Dalva, published in 1988, and a film in 1996, which features his first female protagonist. So one of the criticisms that Harrison received um, about his work was that it was hyper-masculine um, or kind of felt misogynist. And I haven't read enough of Harrison's work to really make a claim on that. I think there's definitely some distinctly masculine perspectives, but I thought that was sort of interesting, uh, a criticism of his work when this novel has come out. You know, I wonder if that was a response to his critics or if he just happened to be compelled to write in this female voice. I also wonder, like we were talking about the comparison to Ernest Hemingway, mm -hmm. who I think one of the critiques of Ernest Hemingway is a hyper-masculine style as well. So uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that comparison is, there's more to it than we initially gave it credit. Could be. Or maybe it's people trying to tie him more closely to it. <laughs> okay. One yeah, of the two. I see that. Um, so in late 1988, he starts a column called The Raw and the Cooked, uh, which begins in Smart Magazine, but then transfers to Esquire in 1990. And he wrote 29 columns for this series. Um, and eventually those columns were collected into the novel, The Raw and the Cooked, in 1992. And this was what kind of... What is it a column for? Oh, so good question. Here's the kind of origins of this. Jim was interested in visiting graves of writers and sometimes traveled for that purpose. And out of this idea was a literary travel column, which became the raw and the cooked when Jim turned it into food. So instead of writing a literary travel column, <clears throat> he actually started writing kind of this food-oriented column because he was also kind of a gourmand or a foodie on the side as well, which I thought was really funny. So um, it's a food column inspired by his travels to authors' graves. Right? What an interesting kind of sequence of events. That doesn't whet my appetite very much, I'll be honest well, with you. I don't think the food came about from his travels to authors. I think initially it was, oh, you travel around to see authors' graves. Oh, you should write a literary travel column. But he was more interested in writing like a food travel column. I see. Okay. Right. And again, this is in the this is in the nineties. So you're not getting this sort of I feel I feel like as of recently we've had this huge revival in in people writing about food, in food criticism, in restauranturing, in all of that stuff. Um, but I don't think it was quite as popular, you know, at this time. Because if we think about Julia Child in that episode, the idea of a woman cooking on live television was sort of revelatory. Um, and something that was very different than what was typical. And so I have a feeling his column was pretty pioneering in that sense. Hmm. Very cool. Right? 
So he also writes about the outdoors for Sports Illustrated um, and then uh, publishes a series of work throughout the rest of his life. He actually becomes, if not more prolific than his early career, um, quite so, writing novels and things like that throughout the 90s and 2000s when he's, you know, getting up in years. So he publishes a collection of novellas called Julep in 1994. And the beast God forgot to invent in 2000, which is an awesome title. That is a good title. Yes, I have not read it, but I, I really like the title. Um, in 2002, he moves to Montana and he says it's because when his wife and daughters took a trip to England, um, they decided that because the daughters lived out in Montana, that Jim and his wife should move there because he was not near and didn't get to see his children and grandchildren very often. That's a sweet reason to move. I know. <laughs> right? So he moves to go be closer to his family. So they summer in Montana and then they winter in Patagonia, Arizona. In 2003, he pairs up with Ted Kuzer to write Braided Creek, a conversation in poetry. Again, kind of a very interesting form, it sounds like, of a novel. And um, he kind of continues to write at this point as well, still about food and things like that, not as formally um, as his previous work, but still did. And one of the most famous sort of stunts that he pulls in, in efforts to do this was to have uh, flown to Paris for a day to have a 37-course lunch prepared by the French chef Marc Minot. 37 courses? How, how, do you, how, do you even, how do you even eat? 37 courses. I have no idea. But I thought the the origins of this 37 course lunch was really cool. The chef pulled recipes published from 1654 to 1823. That is cool. It's right? almost like a, a chronology in food. Right. But kind of through this chef's lens or perspective. But yeah. anyway, so he goes to Paris to have this sort of legendary meal and then writes about it for The New Yorker in 2004. And it's still something that people talk about. Like it has become a touchstone or a reference point for people who write about food to discuss this piece that he wrote. Wow. Right. I think like really legendary. I think it's so interesting that he's found success in so many writing genres. Yes. I feel like not many other authors that we've talked about find success in other genres. They might try other genres, but he's really successful in like food writing and poetry and novels. It sounds like he can write whatever is in his head and he can, you know, make it popular. Right. And have, have, as you pointed out, success. I was just thinking about Alfred Tennyson, who was not successful in his playwriting endeavors, despite trying for like 30 plays or something like that. Yeah. Or Cervantes, like the same yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. So he did what other authors could not. Right. He crossed over. Yes. Speaking of crossing over, he crosses back from food writing um, to a series of novellas called The Farmer's Daughter in 2010, The River Swimmer in 2013, and The Ancient Minstrel in 2016. Um, and he then starts a series of novellas about the misadventures of Brown Dog, who is a dissolute Native American. And those are published as one volume in 2013. 
So again, this is 2013. He's writing, I think, incredible amounts uh, up, up until kind of his end, as it were. Many of these later novels, again, in addition to being tied to the earth, are also set in Michigan, which, again, other ties of his to here. And in a Paris Review interview, um, the interviewer kind of noting uh, all of his work at the later part of his life asks, have you noticed your stamina decreasing as you get older? And Harrison's response is, quote, Actually, it's increased over what it was 10 years ago. I usually dance half an hour a day to Mexican reggae music with 15-pound dumbbells. I guess it's aerobic, and the weights keep your chest and arms in shape. You know that group Los Lobos? They go from ordinary rock music into this crazy border music, which I love. End quote. If he was still around today, there would be so many people in his workout class. Yes. Just taking these dumbbells and dancing to like border Mexican music. I really like that. Right. So this I think is a a wonderful idea for a fitness class that we should embrace. (laughs) I think more people should do it because apparently it's very helpful. So everybody go grab your 15 pound dumbbells. We'll get a music playlist going and this will be our our Jim Harrison literary workout. We have to have different workouts inspired by different authors, Stephanie. Oh, great. That'll be our next our next venture published on our website. That's right. <laughs> Emily Dickinson's will be sitting in bed. That's right. That's the it's work. It's a little Flannery O'Connor's. Yes. No, hers is walking, chasing her peacocks. That's right. Yes. It's just a feather dance. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. So um, Harrison also takes a foray into nonfiction, right? He's done some articles, but his first series of nonfiction essays is compiled as The Raw and the Cooked, so his same title, Adventures of a Roving Gourmand. So that's his kind of way of taking all of these columns and transitioning them into a more readable essay format. Uh, in 2002, he publishes, as I mentioned at the beginning, Off to the Side, which is his memoir. And then in 2007, he gets elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. It's a big deal. Yes. And so March 26, 2016, he dies at the age of 78. Um, and just after his death, uh, posthumously, I believe, the, the collection of short stories called Dead Man's Float is published as well. What an oddly appropriately named title. I wonder if he knew. I don't. And so here's here's something interesting. Um, there was a Lit Hub article published about him as well. And it was this really beautiful kind of reflection from uh, Dean Coopers. And he spent some time with Harrison and talks about his death in this way, that his wife died a few months before he did. And Coopers writes, quote, his heart was hers. And a few months later, it stopped. He died at his desk midline, end quote, which I think kind of beautifully poetic, not only in a reflection of a relationship, but also that he died doing what he loved most, which was writing. Right. It's so beautiful to see that this activity clearly brought him joy, too. Like, I think about Ellison and how much it pained him to write Whereas it was almost a joyful, like, outpouring for 
uh, Jim Harrison. Like, how exciting that he kept it up to his old age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To literally the end. Um, So he, I actually, it is not known where he is buried or kind of what happened. So we will not be able to go find his grave, although I would imagine it was, it's either going to be in Michigan, Montana, or Arizona, but who knows? Maybe it's like, who was it? Oh, it's Julia Child who's buried like in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for no reason. Yeah, Biscayne Bay right. National <laughs> Sea Preserve or so something. So maybe he's there. I don't know. Um, but in total, he wrote 36 books of poems, novels, and collections of novellas, a volume of nonfiction, a children's book, and a memoir. In addition to 20 screenplays, and half a dozen of those were later produced into major motion pictures. So you can see that his body of work, as you articulate earlier, is expansive in terms of what it does genre-wise. And finally, I did want to close with a quote from the Paris Review interview again. Um, And this is him kind of reflecting and tying his life to his work and the themes. So here it is, quote, it's the origin of the thinking behind the theory and the practice of rivers. In a life properly lived, you're a river. You touch things lightly or deeply. You move along because life herself moves and you can't stop it. End quote. And I don't know that you can get a clearer or more concise way of embodying the power of Harrison's work, uh, but also the meaning behind it in the way that he lived his life and how closely tied that was uh, to the themes of his writing. And I think he does hit on this universal idea of, of a river representing life. I mean, you think about, I don't know if you read Siddhartha, uh, but I mean, that's what the Buddha in the um, in the book he uses the same metaphor of the river for life right mm. and how I mean if you're a single drop of water like you can't just pick that up and have it be the river you know what I mean oh, good point. like all of the past and the future is what makes up the river ah and you are but a drop in the river got Very it nice. So I just think how how universal and how beautiful. Yes. And I think um, that's what a lot of a lot of his writing touches on. And so I hope this episode serves as a good introduction to Jim Harrison. I was not particularly familiar with his work before my dad um, actually suggested that we look into this, John. So um, this episode can be dedicated. Thank you so much, Dad. I really appreciate um, the suggestion. He knew we were going to Michigan and thought Jim Harrison might be a good author to investigate. So remember, listeners, please, we are always open to suggestions um, and would love to feature the authors that you're interested in as well. Uh, So we do have another listener suggestion coming up as a feature and looking forward to that. But it was a pleasure to dive into Jim Harrison and get to know more about his work. Thank you for introducing me to this author, Stephanie. I had never heard about him and I am so happy I know about him now. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for your support. Hopefully you enjoyed this very Michigan-based trip and you can do something fun to celebrate Ernest Hemingway's birthday. But until we see you again next time, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, for your support of it. And of course, thank you as always for keeping it lit. There's one.